0: Good morning everyone, uh, my name Norton, and um, hey, there is a brand new song out by Justin Bieber. Does anyone know the name of the song? It's featuring Chance the Rapper, come on, you know the name of the song. What's the name of the song? Does anyone know? Come on. Nobody knows, Brian's so excited again. Uh, hey, the name of the song is Holy, it's Holy. Uh, see, I see some of you shaking your heads. You're like, "Yeah, I knew that." Uh, you just didn't want to say anything. Hey, and he actually just performed this on Saturday Night Live. Let's take a look. All right. So, uh, in typical Bieber fashion, there's um, there's all this religious imagery. I don't. You probably saw the big cross behind him. If you've listened to the song, you know there's these religious words uh, sprinkled throughout the song. But the song isn't really about God. It's about his girlfriend or his wife. He's saying, the way you hold me uh, makes me feel so holy or feel so holy, right? And basically he's saying that your love is amazing, the way you hold me is different, it's special, it's different than any other girl I've ever had, right? There's something holy or sacred about it. And normally we might disparage um, an artist for sort of using this kind of language to talk about their girlfriend or their boyfriend uh, because it seems to cheapen that language And yet, um, here's something interesting. In the Old Testament, the word holy is actually used in a way that's somewhat similar to the way that Justin Bieber uses it. It's not actually, it's not a religious word when it's used in the Old Testament. Um, Let me tell you a little Hebrew. Uh, The Hebrew word is the word kadosh. Um, Sometimes it's spelled with a K, usually with a Q. Uh, It's the word kadosh, and it's actually used and means the same thing that Justin Bieber meant when he said that. It means something that's special, uh, something that's unique, something that's different than everything else, or something that, that stands separately than everything else. And that's an important insight because we're actually reading through this book called Leviticus. We're in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. We're reading through the entire book. If you happen to be joining us, um, we're about two-thirds or three-fourths of the way through the book. And the book is really just about Israel's life right after they have been saved from slavery in Egypt. And this word kadosh, this Hebrew word for holy, shows up over and over and over and over In the book, in fact, if I could summarize the whole book in one phrase, in one message, or in one verse, it would be this from Leviticus 19. Be Kadosh, because I, the Lord your God, am Kadosh. And I'll use the word uh, Kadosh. It's always translated be holy in most of our Bibles, but sometimes I'll use the word Kadosh today Um, Not just to try to sound cool, but because whenever we hear the word holy or be holy, uh, I think what we hear is be religious uh, or be righteous. And, And that doesn't feel attainable for most of us, or it doesn't even feel that appealing for most of us. But that's not what the word means. It's important for us to understand what it means because it wasn't just for Israel. This wasn't just a command for people thousands of years ago, the New Testament also says that we as followers of Jesus today are also supposed to be holy. Listen to the Apostle Peter. He wrote this in his first letter. Uh, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. So he's just talking about becoming a Christian and having a new hope in our lives And then he says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, and then he quotes that verse from the book of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. So so the question for Israel, and I think the question is the same for us still even today, is simple. What does it mean to be kadosh? Or what does it mean to be holy? Holy. And if to be holy doesn't mean you have to be like Mother Teresa, right? Because that's impossible. That feels like this impossible standard. If it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? What does it mean for sort of an average normal guy like me or normal people like all of us? What it would have meant for the Israelites, they would have said they're normal people. In fact, they used to be slaves. They just worked their whole life as slaves, and so now they're living in the wilderness and they're saying, God, you're saying we're supposed to be a holy people. What does that even mean? And in a sense, this is what the entire book of Leviticus is trying to answer. It's just trying to answer this question. Now, today we're going to discover an insight. It's tucked away into chapters 21 and 22. That's where we're at in the book. That's what we're reading. And uh, it's an insight that answers this question in a new way and surprising and maybe unsuspecting way. Now, first, uh, let me show you an image. Um, this is my crude attempt at trying to explain something really, really important. The first half of Leviticus is about the priests in the tabernacle. And we read a whole bunch of that. It's all about these specific people in this specific place, the priests in the tabernacle. And in the second half, it shifts attention to the people of Israel at large, and their homes, and their lives, and their camps, and their fields, and what happens outside of the tabernacle, but then the mission is always even bigger than that. It's bigger than just the people of Israel and what their lives are going to be like even when they once get to the promised land. The mission is always for all people and all of creation. But it starts with this very small group of people that have been set apart, these priests, in this very specific place, a tabernacle that was about the same size as this building, maybe slightly bigger. It starts with them. And as they learn what it means to be Kadosh in this place that is called Kadosh, they will model holiness for the rest of the people and how they can be holy in their homes and in their lives and in their neighborhoods. And then the people of Israel are always to be a model for the entire world. Do you see this kind of movement in the book of Leviticus? Now, we're in the second half of the book, so we're reading about the people and their lives. And last week, we read about all of these instructions about how they're supposed to relate to other people and how they're supposed to live their lives in their homes. But then suddenly, in chapter 21, what we're going to read today, it shifts back to the priest's and it has some instructions specifically for stuff they do at the tabernacle. And we don't really know why it shifts back for just these two chapters. Um, Whoever edited the final version of this book of Leviticus probably put together a bunch of uh, groups of instructions, and we don't know why they didn't put these two chapters in the first half of the book. Maybe There's a really important insight in these two chapters that is for the priest, but it's not just for the priest. It's really for all of the people, and I think that's what we're going to see today. So let's jump into the chapters, and here's what I'm going to do. We're not actually going to read the chapters. They're fairly tedious and detailed, so I'm going to give you a quick summary and then tell you why all of this is super important. There are six different sets of instructions or sections in these two chapters, here's what they are. Um, in verses one through nine in chapter 21, the first section is about priests, instructions for the priests concerning mourning and marriage. So, mourning is whenever someone died, uh, and issues of life and death are really important. Here's how the priests are supposed to navigate that, and here's who priests can marry. Um, and then the second section of instructions are to the high priest specifically about mourning and marriage. The third section, verses 16 through 24, are about physical qualifications for certain priestly roles. Um, So for example, there are some defects, physical defects, that if a priest has, they're not supposed to perform certain priestly duties. So if a priest is blind or has a permanent skin disease, um, they're not supposed to offer sacrifices at the altar. Which seems a bit strange and even unfair to us, so we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, The fourth section, now in chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, is about the priests and how they're to uh, eat meat that has been offered to God. So remember earlier in Leviticus, um, the Israelites brought sacrifices and the priests oversaw all of that and they were supposed to eat some of the meat of those sacrifices. So now there's rules about how to do that in the proper way. The fifth section, verses 10 through 14 in chapter 22, are instructions about who can eat the meat offered to God? So actually the priests can share some of that meat with their family, but there's rules about how to do that. And then the last section, verses 17 through 33, are instructions about physical qualifications for the animal offerings. So there's a list of physical defects that disqualify an animal from being offered to God. And interestingly, this list of physical defects is very similar to the list of physical defects for the priests who are overseeing those rituals. So those are the two chapters, and now you can see where we're not reading all of these detailed and tedious verses together. But here's what's so fascinating, and here's the insight that is buried in all of these instructions. If you go to that first section At the end of that first section, in chapter 21, verse 6, God is talking to the priests and he says this, they are to be kadosh because I, the Lord, am kadosh, I who make you kadosh. And this is new. They've heard part of this before, you priests and you people of Israel, you are to be kadosh. That is holy, distinct, different, separate, special, unique, because I, God, am kadosh. I am holy and different and distinct and separate and special and unique. And here's the new part, though. I will make you kadosh, which is huge, If Israel doesn't get that last part, if they only had the first statement, you have to be holy, be kadosh, be different. Don't be like any of the other peoples in the world or any of the other nations. If they only got that first statement, I'm guessing the Israelites would say, yeah, I don't know if we can do that. (laughs) We don't know how to do that, right? We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not righteous enough. We're not special enough. We're not good enough. We don't know how to be kadosh on our own. We're just a bunch of slaves our whole lives. We've just been doing slave type things. We don't really even know what to do. And God is saying, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. You need to be kadosh. You, You need to be holy, but don't worry. I will make you holy. You can't just sit around and do nothing now. You have a part in this. You're not going to sit on the sideline. You have a role to play. I have a mission for the entire world. I'm going to do something in the entire world. And you are a central part of the mission. It's going to start with this group of priests, and it's going to go to the whole nation. And the nation is going to play a central mission. You're going to be holy. But don't worry. I will make you holy. And get this. This very last phrase, I am the one, who makes you kadosh or holy, it's repeated at the end of all six of those sets of instructions in Leviticus 21 and 22. I am the Lord. I will make you holy. 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 God keeps saying it over and over and over and over. And if you're just the average Israelite, then the question is, Okay, how's that going to (laughs) happen? Like, how does that even work? How does God make us as a whole people, how does God make us holy? How does he make us different? How does he make us this light in the world that he keeps saying, we are? And the answer is actually quite simple. It's found at the end of chapter 22. And this has actually been said before, but here's what he says again. God says, keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you kadosh or holy. That's how you'll be holy. That's how you become my holy people. You'll live out all of these instructions that I'm giving you. Uh, listen to how one scholar, his name is John Gay, he describes this whole process. He says this, Yahweh makes the Israelites holy by giving them laws to obey, and the Israelites make themselves holy and become holy by obeying these laws. But it is not so difficult to stay with the themes of Leviticus 19. It simply requires action, such as not sacrificing your children to Molech not consulting mediums, not belittling your parents, not committing adultery, and not marrying your sister. It is not that complicated, right? It's it's really not that complicated. Just do these things, and then you become holy. John Golden Gay goes on. He says this next, and this is really important. He says, this could set an attractive prospect before ordinary people. You do not need to be born in the right clan to be holy. You do not need to be rich, clever, powerful, or even religiously inclined or monumentally self-disciplined in order to count to Yahweh. You just have to be holy in these down-to-earth ways. You then count as Yahweh's holy people. And isn't that amazing when you actually stop and think about it? Being holy has nothing to do with anything you were born with or any circumstances you find yourself in right now. Being holy has nothing to do with personality. You don't have to have the right personality. You don't have to have certain gifts. You don't have to have certain strengths compared to other weaknesses. You don't have to have a certain education. You don't have to work in a certain career. You don't have to have a certain social status. Anyone can be kadosh. Anyone can be holy. All you have to do is follow God's instructions. And get this, you don't even have to be perfect at following him. All of the instructions contain provisions for when you screw up the instructions and don't follow them very well. Regularly saying, I'm sorry, I screwed things up, I didn't follow these instructions, is part of the instructions. So just follow these instructions and that's how you become holy. That's how I'm going to make you unique and different and separate and set apart and special and distinctive in this world. That's how you're going to live out the vocation and the purpose that I have for you. Now let me apply all of this to us because it's, it's easy to sort of talk about Leviticus because it was so long ago, but how does this apply to all of us? Because essentially, I think this is still teaching us how to be holy. If you're a follower of Jesus, then God saved you just like he saved Israel from Egypt. And you have found new life in him. And, And maybe you don't experience the fullness of this new life all the time in every detail of your life, right? There's mundane parts of our lives. And yet, all of us would probably be able to say, there have been moments where we've experienced profound peace, maybe profound forgiveness, healing, purpose, meaning, undeserved grace, right? You have experienced the difference that God can make in your life. And to be holy, to be kadosh, is just to live out that difference. It's to live out that new life that God has given you. It's to show the world a new and a different way. And Leviticus says the way you do that is when you simply follow God's instructions. That's how God will make you Holy. So let's get very specific. If you were to take all of the instructions we've read so far and that we're going to read in Leviticus, you could essentially put them into three large categories that still apply to us as followers of Jesus today. Let me tell you what they are. These are the ways you become kadosh or holy. The first is just loving others. It's just loving others. And this is the heartbeat of so many of those instructions that we read Last week, if you were with us then, you just love others in your everyday actions. And in the Old Testament, loving others is almost always about compassion or justice. It's one of those two things. Uh, compassion is simply being kind to someone who needs kindness. I mean, it could be as simple as handing a meal to somebody's homeless on the side of the road. It could be saying encouraging words to somebody at work when you sense They're having a bad day or a bad week. It might be just raking the leaves in your neighbor's yard. Uh, Justice is standing up for someone who needs standing up for. That might be fighting for someone who's being taken advantage of or who hasn't been given a voice. It might simply be revisiting the policies that you have in your workplace and asking the question, do any of these policies privilege one group of people over another? Are these unfair towards anyone? Perhaps it's simply choosing to not take credit for something when someone tries to give you credit and you know you didn't do it. That's the fair thing or the just thing. And our world right now lacks a lot of compassion and justice. And so to live it out on a regular basis, to live out a life and actions of compassion and justice is to offer a different way. And here's the deal. You don't have to solve every issue in, of compassion or justice in our world right now. That would be overwhelming. All you have to do is do this. Ask this simple question today. Can I just in one action live out an act of compassion or justice intentionally Just do that today and tomorrow and the next day. Is there one way I can show compassion or justice to someone else? Today. And what if they don't even notice it? What if I don't get credit for it? Well, that would be a really holy day. Here's the second way that we can be holy. And it's through countercultural practices. Countercultural practices are habits or patterns of behavior that display certain values that may seem odd or weird to the wider culture. Uh, Right now, we read about this a bit last week in Leviticus. Right now, it's normal in our culture to treat sex really casually, to just hook up with people that you're dating, and so to take sex seriously seriously. To, to understand that God gave us this as a gift and it's wrapped up in, in the deep, deepest intimacy and, and a lifelong commitment that you can share with another person to have that understanding of sex and then live that out in your life, that would be a countercultural practice. Here's another one. Uh, it's normal in our culture right now to just use whatever technology is available to give us whatever we want as quickly and efficiently as possible. So, to practice habits that actually slow us down rather than speed us up, to set up boundaries that actually uphold the value of presence with other people over distraction or efficiency, that would be countercultural, right? See, countercultural practices are usually about how we treat our body. How we treat our time, how we spend our money, or how we consume media. And in fact, we did a whole series on practices like this this past summer. And for some of us, a series like that where we talked about some basic practices, it just feels a bit simplistic or, or, or elementary or basic. But this is what it means to be holy. It's not that complicated, right? It's boiled down to these very simple, everyday practices in our lives that for some of us in the midst of our wider culture will often be counter-cultural. So here's the question to ask yourself. Is there a practice that I need to start? Or maybe it's a practice I need to restart. I gave it a start a while ago and it sort of petered out or I lost traction or momentum. Is there something you need to restart that's related to how you treat your body, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, or how you consume media. Here's the third way that Leviticus says that we become holy, through visible or symbolic markers. And this is probably the hardest one for us to understand, especially when we read the book of Leviticus, because you read some of those instructions for Israel um, where they're told to do something, but the thing that they're told to do doesn't really have any moral connotations, at least ones that are explicit, but they're told to do something because it will visibly or symbolically reveal or demonstrate that they are a different kind of people. So uh, eat these animals, not those animals, because all the other people eat those animals, and sometimes they eat those animals or that meat when they're worshiping their idols or their gods, and so I don't want you to do that. I want you to eat these, not Those or grow your beard in this way, not that way, because I want you to visibly and physically look different than other people. And sometimes there's symbolism in these things. Last week we read it said, Don't wear clothes made of two different kinds of material, or don't plant two different kinds of crops next to each other. And the symbolism is keep these things separate and distinctive and different just like you're supposed to be, distinctive and different. Your clothes and your crops will symbolize your identity. And this is actually what's going on with that passage about the priests and how certain priests shouldn't have any physical defects. Uh, I had a friend come to me right when we started the series, what, 10 weeks ago? And uh, he actually said, I hope you're gonna talk about Leviticus 21, because there's this one passage about the priests, and they're not supposed to have defects, and that is just wrong. And I thought, man, you are way ahead, that's awesome. But it's true, when we read that, and it says certain priests shouldn't have any physical defects, that they need to be sort of whole and perfect, and it just doesn't seem right, it doesn't sit well with us, particularly if we equate holiness with something that's morally good. But what's going on here is a symbolism. Because whenever a priest came and offered this sacrifice to God, there's a sense that they are actually approaching God himself. And so the very way that they should present themselves should be whole, should have some sort of integrity, should visibly demonstrate something about God himself. And so they're even told they have to take a bath before they do these things, they're told they have to put on new clothes. Take off your old clothes, your normal clothes, your regular clothes, and put on these new clothes. And we read about some of those clothes and there's all these symbolic things going on with all of these clothes. And we're told that when you put these clothes on and when you present yourself and if you have defects, don't present yourself. This is how you're to be holy. If holiness is about moral goodness, what's right and wrong, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But if being holy simply means be different, be distinctive in the world, and more often than not, what that means is you're gonna love other people in acts of compassion and justice, and you're gonna have countercultural practices in your life, that's how you're gonna be holy. But sometimes it simply means I want you to visibly or symbolically look different, that's also how you'll be holy. And the two things will reinforce. One another. When you look different, it's gonna remind you that you act different and that you are different, that you are to be a light in this world. So, what are the visible or symbolic markers that followers of Jesus should have today? Well, I don't really know. I don't know what they are for you or what they should be for us as a community. Maybe there should be something different about the clothes we wear. Maybe there should be something different about the furniture in our apartments or our homes or the art that we have on our walls or the foods that we eat or the cars we drive. I don't know. Something that communicates that my identity is different. I think of the Amish people. It's pretty clear that they have a different identity by how they look. And what they do, I think of Orthodox Jews. Now, I'm not suggesting that we become Amish or we become like Orthodox Jews, but I do wonder if we have worked so hard at trying to blend in and look like everyone else, that it's no surprise that followers of Jesus often act like everyone else as well. Which is the opposite of being kadosh, of being holy, of showing a new and different and life-giving way to the world. So, here's your assignment today and this week. Would you think about these three areas in your life? And would you not only think about them, but would you actually do something in each of these areas. Because that is how God makes us holy. Let me close in prayer. <clears throat> God, I pray um, for each person who's here in this building today or who's watching online. Um, We all come from different backgrounds and different places in our journeys of faith. And yet, I think we all desire to experience the life-giving ways that you want to offer us and to demonstrate and live those out in the world. God, we want to be the light that you've called us to be. We want there to be this driving meaning and purpose in our careers, in our families, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools. And so, God, give us the strength and the courage to think deeply about these things today and this week. If there's new practices we need to start, God, give us the wisdom to know how to do that and to trust in you. If there are ways that we need to start living differently, God, we can't do it on our own. (laughs) We need you to help us. Help us become the people you've called us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen.